Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. At the dawn of the 5th century BCE, two worlds collided in an epic and dramatic fashion as the mighty Persian Empire waged war against the city-states of Greece. Beginning as a minor rebellion in the far western fringe of Darius's empire, the conflict would explode into a full-scale war that would last for five decades. Spanning dozens of battles and costing thousands of lives, the Greco-Persian Wars have shaped western imagination for over 2,000 years. In the first of this two-part episode, we discuss the roots of the hostilities, the Ionian Revolt, the first invasion of Greece, and the Battle of Marathon. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 2 of the series, we're discussing the great empires of the ancient world, the forces that created and destroyed them, and the lasting legacy they leave behind that helps shape our modern age. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, on my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, and your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. On this episode, we'll begin our discussion of a conflict that's been defined as East versus West, Old versus New, and Greek versus Persian. Of course, we're talking about the Persian Wars of the 5th century BCE. Now, the Persian Wars are a very large topic, and for that reason, we'll be breaking down our discussion over two episodes. The focus of the first is the first invasion of Greece, the Battle of Marathon, and the forging of a Greek identity. You know, one of the ways I like to talk about this war, because let's face it, when we hear about it, we tend to hear one side of the story, is from what some would describe as the Persian perspective. But that's a statement I would take umbrage with. Throughout most of our studies, throughout most of our life in the Western world, when we hear about the Persian invasion of Greece, all too often we see it as an invasion from the outside looking in. That is, we view this conflict and we view this war from Greece looking out. But what we have to understand is that from the Persian viewpoint, a much larger empire, a much more consequential empire, when we view it from that angle, we get a much more complete picture. Now, I'm not saying viewing it from the perspective of the Greeks is an inherently bad thing. What I am saying is that when you ignore the Persian aspect of things, an empire we've discussed in great detail thus far this season of wartime, you get a much more complete picture and the overall conflict itself becomes much more impressive. That's the stance we'll take. 
We'll give equal time to each side, but we'll tend to view it from the Persian perspective because it's the one we can learn the most from and the one that we often uh, disregard the most. When we talk about the Persian invasion of Greece, right there we start with that word invasion, we're missing something very important. Invasion uh, is from the Greek perspective, really makes it sound like uh, our world, the world in which we live, is now part and parcel, is now uh, under the command uh, of a stranger. This notion that this far-off, distant land, this group of barbarians in a way, enters our world and disrupts the status quo. But we're going to start by getting rid of that term, the, the Persian invasion, uh, because we're going to view it from the other side. We have to understand that something we've talked about a great deal already here in wartime, that by the time we get to the 5th century BCE, the Persian Empire is the largest and most powerful empire in the world. It's the first, what we would think of as massive, globalized empire. They control lands in Africa. They control lands in Europe. They control lands all throughout the Middle East, even as far east as India. We talked about the rise of the Persian Empire under great leaders like Cyrus and Darius. And now what we're going to talk about next is how the interaction with the Greeks is really emerges and really shapes the world as we know it today. If there's one way we can describe the Persian Empire in the 5th century BCE, I want you to do it using the word order. That's a big word for us, order, the way we think about it, and historically it's large uh, when you really consider what it means. The Persian Empire grows faster than almost any empire we've ever seen to that point. It's really incredible, considering that the Persians started as a relatively small group of nomadic herders on the Iranian plateau, and expanded over thousands and thousands of square miles, gobbling up every single peoples that we've talked about thus far. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, uh, amongst others. That's a really impressive accomplishment. And the way that they do it, and more importantly for the Persians, the way that they maintain it, is that word we've already used, order. When we think about Cyrus, I want you to think expansion in the Persian world. Literally the construction of the Persian Empire. But when you hear the name Darius, that later king of the Persian world, I don't want you to think of construction, and I don't want you to think of expansion. You really want to think of the term consolidation. That is, yes, Cyrus built a vast empire. Yes, he took it to places he's never dreamed of. But it falls on Darius to consolidate it, to keep it. And this is very much the backdrop of the earliest experiences of the Greek and Persian conflict. The way the Persians maintain control, the way they keep order, is by really utilizing a very strict structural methodology. When they conquer an area, they like to leave it under the control uh, of an individual who may not necessarily really impose Persian rule on them, typically someone from within their own society, but certainly someone who will uh, really protect the Persian worldview. They like to structure their world. The king is at the top, everyone else is underneath. But it's a very large, very complex bureaucracy in the Persian Empire. Everywhere they go, and again we're talking about 
millions of people under their control are controlled through this basic structure. And the Persians, as part of their cultural DNA, love order, they love structure, because it keeps them in command, and it keeps everyone else under control. That's what makes the Persian Empire so powerful, and that's what makes them so profound. It's also one of the biggest problems they're going to face when they deal with these very unusual, from their perspective, and very unruly people who live on the borderlands, the Greeks. So where do the Greeks play in? Well, we know who the Greeks are. They're a collection of a few dozen individual nationalistic city-states. They all speak a very common language. Some would say they worship common gods. Some would say they have very similar customs. We'll say enough that, looking back, we can say the Greeks are a, a fairly cohesive society. But the Greeks themselves never view it that way. They're a collection of different city-states with their own different customs, and although they have a lot in common, they tend to emphasize their differences more. In previous episodes of Wartime, we've talked about the differences between Athens, a democratic society, and Sparta, an almost totalitarian monarchical society. Major differences to people we'd all consider to be Greek. Well, when the Persians view the Greeks, they see a very big problem in their worldview. There are some Greeks already in their empire. They view the Greeks as troublesome because, again, how do the Persians seek to control them? Well, they want to establish an individual from within their own society to uphold Persian values. But the Greeks have this very problematic circumstance for the Persians that often emerges in their interactions when they fight with one another. Not just on the field of battle, that happens, but the Greeks have it as part of who they are, part of their society, that they squabble over any number of things to the Persians that's entirely offensive and ineffective. They'll have arguments about which form of government is best. They'll have arguments about which style of art is the best. And for the Persians, this is never something that they're very interested in. They like order, and they like structure, and their version of order is the supreme order in the world. So it's from that very idea that I think we see some of the major origins in the conflict of worldview between the great Persian Empire uh, and the world of the Greeks. It's that disconnect between what the order and structure of the world should look like. Now, that being said, it also leads us to the way we typically study this time period. Again, we view the Persians as the great invaders into our almost bubbleized, we can say, Western world. But I don't want to take that viewpoint anymore. I want to view the Persian Empire as the most powerful empire on Earth, which it is. And I want to view the Greeks for what they are. The Greeks to the Persians are a peripheral people who are constantly problematic in their world. They don't buy into the Persian way of life. They don't submit to the Persian Empire. Uh, they can in many ways be viewed, and we want to use this term delicately, almost a terroristic threat. That is, a group of people who are committed to defying what they consider to be the rational order of the world. Now, what Greeks are already in their empire? Where do the Persians and the Greeks come to pass? Well, we know how big the Persian Empire is, and we know where it stretches to, throughout the Middle East, throughout North Africa, and all the way to India. But what we also have to understand is that the Persian Empire has crossed the Hellespont. That is, it crossed the stretch of land between the Mediterranean Sea 
and the Black Sea. And that means that it's already moved into Europe. Now, if you can visualize the Mediterranean Basin, you'll know we've already talked a great deal about an area we described as Anatolia. Today, it's the modern nation-state of Turkey. Well, at that point, believe it or not, there are a significant number of Greek colonists who live on the Mediterranean coast of Anatolia. The region is known as Ionia, and the people who live there, Greek speakers in their own city-states, are known as Ionian Greeks. As Cyrus moved into Anatolia and conquered the people who lived there at the time, the Lydians, they were the people who dominated the Ionians previously, suddenly you have a significant number of Greek city-states falling under Persian control. Now, the Greeks were a conundrum for the Persians from the beginning. Again, the way they like to rule an area which isn't native to them, which is their entire empire, is by elevating a group of individuals from within the society and putting them in power, therefore upholding the Persian world. Well, the individuals that the Persians will put in power in these Greek city-states in Anatolia will be known as tyrants. Now, tyrant today has a very negative connotation, but tyrant in the Greek world, very simply, uh, would have been a leader that arises from the people themselves, a man of the people in a way, so to speak. But tyranny, which was a pretty broad form of government earlier in Greece, has really fallen out of favor, and the basis of a tyrannical leadership was that a man of the people, a champion of the people, rose up and defended their rights in a political way. Well, these Persian-implemented tyrants weren't necessarily casted in the same mold. I mean, they were certainly meant to appear the same, but everyone knew in the Ionian Greek world they were merely puppets of the Persian Empire. And because of that, they had a very limited appeal and therefore a very limited effectiveness. There is no question that the Greeks who lived in Ionia under Persian control were unhappy with the Persians ruling over them. And they were most specifically unhappy with this system of this regional ruler put in place by the Persians. Life was certainly not easy for one of these tyrants, these Greeks selected to rule in the name of Persia. Because for one, they were clearly a target of hatred by their fellow Greeks. And two, they also had to keep their Persian masters happy. So you could never go too far to either side without remembering that you are really uh, in, a, in a proverbial political no-man's land. Well, this is what we begin to see. The Greeks aren't happy with the system. They're beginning to openly express their unhappiness. For the Persians, this is a great offense to their sensibility. They're the number one empire in the world. They are the order of the world. Who are these fringe, alien peoples, these Greeks, to challenge their way of life? The way the empire worked, as it spread, was that the Persian Empire basically entered into a social contract of sorts with the people he ruled. He demanded earth and water from all peoples. In exchange, they were able to join the empire. They were able to benefit from this great, massive global economy. They were able to have the protection of the world's largest military and be considered citizens of the world's largest empire. In that mindset, you should be happy to be Persian. But it also means you will remain uh, fixed in a very specific social hierarchy. You don't debate the hierarchy. Uh, you don't engage in your conversation and express your dismays about it. It's just one of the very tangible and visible elements of Persian life. 
But we know from our Western viewpoint, the Greeks have a very different uh, view of government and society. They have a society of debate and of logic and of reason. And this is a bridge that the Persians just can't cross. They can't understand it. And what you have developing in the Ionian Greek territories, these Greek city-states in the Persian Empire, in Western Anatolia, is a very troublesome scene. We like to say the Ionian Revolt, which will be the great precursor, begins in about the year 499. At the heart of the revolt are the Greeks themselves. They're unhappy with the Persian Empire. But that's not necessarily what sparks the initial reaction from the Persians. One of the tyrants in the city of Miletus, Miletus will be at the center of this, is a Greek man named Aristagoras. And Aristagoras is very interesting in elevating his social status, elevating his wealth along the way. A Persian leader, also in the area, called Artaphernes, will join with Aristagoras in an attempt to conquer a neighboring city-state. In conquering this neighboring city-state, they both hope to elevate their own stock and gain more political power along the way. From the view of the empire, this is a very troublesome development. Surely enough, Aristagoras' expedition will fail, and he has already now put himself on the map as a problem for the empire. Aristagoras, we like to say, went all in in this power grab against the city-state of Naxos. And it was a failure. In his mind, he's already viewed as an enemy of the empire, so Aristagoras, this Greek tyrant, will turn to uh, inciting all of Ionian Greece into rebellion against the Persians. It can't get any worse for him. The Persians are probably already coming for him to punish him for his first failed attempt at power. Why not go down in flames, so to speak? And the people of Ionian Greece, Greeks under Persian control, are more than happy to oblige. Freedom from the empire is something that is born from their cultural view of the world, from their worldview. And they're happy to pursue it alongside Aristagoras. Now, from the vantage point of these Ionian Greeks, they are facing almost insurmountable odds. The Persian Empire is the largest and most powerful force in the world, and the resources they can draw on are more than any Greeks on their own could ever fight off. But we have to remember, language is an incredible binding agent for peoples. And although most Greeks live across the Aegean Sea on mainland Greece, they're never really that far away. And it's at this point that two major powers on mainland Greece start to involve themselves in Ionian business and therefore in the Persian Empire's business. The first is a highly beautiful, highly stylized, very sophisticated Greek city-state known as Eretria. And the second, much more famously and much more significantly, is the city-state of Athens. Athens, as we've talked about, is a society based on logic and reason and democratic values. They're Democrats in Athens. And to hear that their fellow Greek peoples across the sea are about to fight for their rights and about to fight for their freedom is something that ideologically the Athenians just can't do without. So the Eretrians and the Athenians from mainland Greece offer their support to their Greek brethren. And this is going to be a major spark of contention in the future. Now, from the perspective of the Persian Empire, you have a rebellion occurring on your borderlands. And even worse than that, 
you have these outsiders, the Athenians and the Eritreans, interfering and involving themselves in your business. Well, the way you want to handle that is by crushing this rebellion succinctly and quickly. By 498 BCE, with the Athenians and the Eritreans in tow, the various armies of the Ionian Greeks take the rebellion one step further. It's not just an open discussion of rebelling against the Persian worldview, but they actually attack and destroy Persia's largest and most important city in all of Anatolia, a city known as Sardis. When Sardis is destroyed, clearly it's a declaration of open rebellion. Now, from the emperor's viewpoint, the emperor being Darius of the Persian world, here he has on hand yet another rebellion. Now, he's handled rebellions before, and we've talked about a lot of rebellions this season in wartime. When you confront them as an imperial force, the most effective way to handle them is almost always to eliminate them with extreme prejudice. It will suppress the rebellion itself, and it will also will say discourage other peoples in your empire from rebelling as well. If you possess an empire, rebellion is a fact of life that you're just going to have to deal with. Following the destruction of Sardis, a major, major offense to Darius and the rest of the Persian Empire, Persian troops will run down the Greeks and really punish a lot of these Greek forces uh, along the way. We say that the attack on Sardis is the only real offensive maneuver made by the Ionian Greeks during the six-year Ionian Revolt. After that, however, the Ionians will feel the full might of the Persian Empire. Darius will march a three-pronged attack into Anatolia with the express goal of putting down the rebellion. When he does, we'll see a number of battles. The only real essence of victories the Greeks will have in this regard uh, will be sort of an ambush attack in 497. And for the next two years, you have a very terrible stalemate. The rebels themselves, the Greeks in Ionia, are being suppressed, but the revolution burns on ever so slowly. Well, in 494, the Persians, Darius at the helm, finishes the Ionian revolt once and for all. He has singled out Miletus, that original Greek city of Aristagoras in Anatolia, as the heart of the problem. And he crushes Miletus in the way that he would in any other case. He deports the people, he castrates the men, he enslaves the women, he moves them to all corners of the empire. It was a staggeringly destructive defeat for the Ionian Greeks. And when Miletus is destroyed, most would say that's the end of the Ionian Revolt. Again, the year is 493. So we've seen thus far, when you view this conflict from the Persian world looking out, and you view the Greeks as a peripheral people on the edge of your empire, you can handle a rebellion of theirs relatively easily and relatively painlessly, at least for the Persians. But remember, Darius has to set a precedent. Darius has to set a standard. And one of the realities that he's got to face is that this was not merely an in-house affair. The Persian Greeks, the Ionians, did rebel. And he punished them with uh, disturbing amounts of prejudice. But he also recognizes that they had help from the outside. The Athenians, these uh, mainland individuals from Greece, the Eretrians, not far away from Athens, had no business 
in Darius's mind, interfering in Persian affairs. Yet they did, and according to his worldview, the order of the Persian Empire was confronted and offended at that point. The only way to shore up his imperial control and send a message to all people in his known empire was to punish these outsiders, the Athenians and the Eretrians, just like he punished the individual city-states of mainland Greece. This would entail, for the first time, a Persian invasion of the Greek mainland. It's with this decision of Darius that we're really at a watershed moment here in Season 2 of Wartime, because we've talked about the rise of empires we can consider to be very eastern empires. That is, individual uh, empires like the Babylonians, the Egyptians, and the Persians. And we've talked about the rise of more European empires, the Minoans, the Mycenaeans, and the Greeks. But right now, in what will be the year 492, we're going to see for the first time those two worlds come together. And when we do that, we see the great debate amongst modern scholars begin. What really is represented in this clash? Is it East versus West, as we've been taught for so long? Is it Old versus New? Is it merely political, Greek versus Persian? And what exactly is at stake? These are very big questions that we're really going to start to unravel over the next two episodes of Wartime. But before we can really take them on, we really want to know what's at stake at the time. Well, for the Greeks, they are a divided people. They're a group of individual city-states with individual interests who really look out for themselves first before anything else. For the Persians, they have experienced nothing but unbridled and unstoppable conquest for now the better part of a century. They've expanded to the east, they've expanded to the west, and every time they do, their worldview and their sense of order is really implemented firmly onto the land they control. Again, their demands are earth and water, that's all. Pay us your taxes, recognize we are in command, and we won't have any problems. It works for them. And you could imagine, with nothing to stop them, Athens and Eretria offer a very convenient excuse to expand their empire deeper into the European world. Here's where we have to be careful, especially with the expansion of the Persian Empire. What we have to be careful of avoiding is this notion that the European world and the Persian world never came to pass before 492. Because the fact of the matter is, Many Greek city-states operating completely on their own had already accepted vassalage or complete adherence to the Persian Empire. Places like Macedon, places like Thrace, these are peoples that are Greek, they speak Greek, they're in mainland Europe, and they do already pay homage to the Persian Empire. So from Darius's viewpoint, Athens and Eretria helping out in this Ionian rebellion is going to do nothing but unsettle his command and weaken his empire to a greater extent. Again, there's no reason for Darius to believe that the conquest of Greece in its totality would be anything but successful. And when you view it that way, 
you get a very different expression and very different experience than the way we often take. We view the Persians in the Western world as these unusual uh, Orientalist outsiders who move in and challenge our status quo. Well, all wars are effectively wars of culture. There's no question about that. But we have to be careful we don't overdo this discussion because we know how much interrelationship there is already. Darius's first military campaign into Greece is going to come immediately following the annihilation of the Ionian Revolt in the year 492 BCE. This invasion will be led by the son-in-law of Darius, Mardonius. Now, as Mardonius is moving through Greece, he's doing two things. One is he's shoring up the allegiance of the Greeks he already controls, some of which we've mentioned in the northern part of the landscape, Macedon and Thrace. And two, he's sending out emissaries to confront those in which he doesn't. They famously ask, again, for earth and water. Now, as these emissaries go through Greece, they have to make a very compelling case to get the Greeks to pay homage to the Persians. How do they do it? Well, you've got two options. Number one, uh, you become one of us. Or number two, you stand in our way. The Persians have the ability to say, we have the largest and most powerful army in world history. We have the largest uh, empire in world history. We have the largest economy in world history. We are a collection of every major empire that's ever existed wrapped into one. And you are one city-state. If you don't accept submission to the Persian Empire, uh, then you will be very quickly steamrolled. And it's for that reason that in 492, the overwhelming majority of Greeks, city-states across the landscape, will give that payment of earth and water that we've mentioned to the Persians. The only two that don't, no surprise, are the two most powerful Greek city-states at the time, Athens in the north and Sparta in the south. As Mardonius is going through, he certainly is not what we would say looking for a fight. If he can get all the Greeks to submit at once, it would save a lot of hardship, it would save a lot of money being spent, and save a lot of people from being killed. But progress for Mardonius really hits what we would consider to be a rough spot in 492. Because as he's moving through Greece, his entire fleet, uh, just off the coast of Greece near Mount Athos, will be destroyed in a storm. They'll wreck against the coast. He himself will be injured in a subsequent raid. Mardonius and the uh, early movements, uh, the early invaders of Greece, so to speak, the Persians, will subsequently go back to Asia, and it will fall on Darius to decide what move to make next. He's got a number of Greeks on his side. He's got a number of Greeks who have pledged their support to him. But in the end, he still has that major, major thorn in his side to deal with, which is, of course, the Athenians. The Spartans have not accepted their wishes of earth and water, but it's those Athenians who participated in that original Ionian revolt that he believes need to be made an example of and need to be punished. And out of this movement, we get one of the most legendary moments in the history of the Western world, the Battle of Marathon. By this point... We're already at the year 490. The first invasion of Greece by the Persian Emperor Darius has been going on for two years. Bardonius' campaign has shored up a lot of support. But you still have to make a statement otherwise of military might. And that takes us to the year 
490. In 490, the son of the aforementioned satrap that we talked about in Anatolia, Artaphernes, will lead a command of an amphibious invasion force of Greece. What they want to do, under Darius's command, of course, is to work their way toward the rebellious city-states outside of their world and at the same time expand the borders of their empire. What we'll see eventually is this idea uh, that the Persians will march on land. But the Persians see no reason to do this at that point. They've conquered most of the known world by marching on land. But remember, mainland Greece is separated by Asia, for the most part, by the Aegean Sea. And the Aegean Sea are filled with tiny Greek islands with many different Greek peoples on them. Artaphernes will lead a group of uh, ships throughout the Greek Isles of the Mediterranean Sea, and all the while make their official collection of earth and water along the way. So what we're seeing, if you're Athens, or if you're Sparta, or if you're even the Eretrians, who we talked about already, you're seeing the Persians make their way toward you. You know you're the target. But even more troubling than that is that they're making their way toward you with your fellow comrades in tow. It seems like the Persian Empire is a great wave that's washing over Greece. And one by one, your fellow comrades, your fellow Greeks, are falling in line. Not only are they preparing to march against you, at least ideologically, but many of them are getting rich in the process. It's a good thing to be a part of the Persian Empire if you're a relatively minor Greek people at the time. Well, as they work their way through, more submissions are made by their fellow Greeks until the Persians arrive at Eretria. Now, remember Eretria and the Athenians both aided with military support in the Ionian Revolt. And even though the Eretrians uh, would probably have submitted to the Persians at this point, the Persians will make no mistake that they have to be punished for what they did earlier in the revolt a decade before. The city of Eretria was known as one of the most beautiful cities in all of the Greek world. Beautiful city, beautifully laid out, very wealthy, very modern, and very sophisticated. Not necessarily known, though, for the military prowess. When the Persians landed in Eretria, the people in the city made no effort to stop them. And they ran into the city, and they closed themselves in. For six days, the beautiful city of Eretria was attacked by the Persians. And eventually, the city would fall. It fell on the seventh day, because two members of Eretrian society themselves actually opened the great walls to the city and let the Persians in. When this happened, the first real show of Persian retribution emerged. The cities were burned, the temples were looted, the city was leveled to the ground. The people inside the city were enslaved and spread throughout the Persian Empire. That's how Darius dealt with a rebellion. And even though the Eretrians were not part of his empire, they were now. That's the world Darius comes from, and you have to understand this to understand how we're talking about this conflict. The Greeks are very much a minor outside people to the Persians. It's why there's almost nothing about this war written by the Persians themselves. But it's a war that, in the Western context, in the minds of the Greeks themselves and larger Western culture, that this is a defining moment in the heart of the Western world. After the fall of Eritrea, 
the Persian forces who have suffered absolutely no resistance to this point in what will become known as the first invasion of Greece. Decide, with one of these parties punish the Eretrians, now we must deal with the Athenians, deliver a striking, cutting blow to the heart of the Greek mainland, and show the rest of their fellow neighbors the Persian Empire is supreme. At that point, the Persians will begin to move down the Greek coastline, landing on the peninsula well known as Attica, of course Athens being one of the great cities of Attica. They'll land at a bay known as Marathon, and it's there that a large Athenian army will assemble to distract or defeat the army, depending on what they choose to do, and protect the city-state of Athens. The Athenians are the only ones who appear on the field of battle at what will become known as the Battle of Marathon to stop the Persian Empire. Now, stopping the Persian Empire is much easier said than done. They're a large collection of forces, they've got a large navy, but they also have many infantrymen. And their most effective weapon of all, they have a great number of cavalry. That is, soldiers on horseback. Cavalry can execute a lot of maneuvers uh, that infantry alone can't do. The odds seem to be insurmountable. And if you can picture the plain of Marathon, we'll set it up nicely for you. The Persian ships are now beached along the Marathon Bay uh, in 490 BCE. In front of the beach is a low, flat plain, and the Persians have assembled their collective might there. Directly in front of that plain, we have a large series of very hilly and mountainous ground. And all through those hills and mountains, you've got roughly 10,000 Athenian soldiers lying in wait. Now, the Athenians know that if the Persians had their way, they'd fight on the low, flat-lying ground, because then the Persians could use, effectively, their great cavalry, and that would be almost unbeatable at that point. The Athenians have no help in this regard. The Spartans are celebrating a religious festival. They are a deeply spiritual, insular, conservative people. They would never fight during this festival. It's a spiritual off-limits for them. So the Athenians are left on their own. This is a stalemate we tend to see. The Persians on the low-lying flat plain, the Athenians in the hills. The Athenians know if they charge down, they have virtually no chance of winning. Well, with Athens only 25 miles away, the Persians will eventually decide if the Athenians are going to place most of their army in these hills, we'll simply reload in our ships, we'll move down the coast of Greece, and we'll attack Athens themselves. They actually begin to fulfill this maneuver. But the way in which they do it is the great mistake that the Greeks are waiting for. And it opens up the opportunity for one of the greatest military victories in the history of the ancient world. The Persians will begin reloading their troops onto their ships to move them south. But they make the fatal flaw of putting their most potent weapon, the cavalry, the soldiers on horseback, on board the ships first. The majority of their forces, very weak infantry, are scattered throughout the plain, and their greatest weapon is now tucked away nicely for the Greeks. When this happens, the Greeks descend from the hill. The Athenians attack the flanks of the Persians first and begin to crush them inward. Now, remember our previous discussion of the Greeks to understand why the Greeks have such an easy time of it at Marathon. Remember the Greek fighting style, the hoplite phalanx. These great warriors uh, that were uh, really designed 
as an almost unbeatable force, especially when taking on a group fighting in a different formation. Well, that's exactly what happens. The hoplite phalanx of the Greeks crush the Persians at the Battle of Marathon. The men rush to the sea, and they escape the battle. Marathon is a victory that the Greeks will rally around for many centuries in the future. It's at this point that, as legend has it, uh, a runner by the name of Philippides will run uh, from the Battle of Marathon, proclaiming victory 25 miles to Athens itself. Uh, he'll say that we've done it, we've won, he'll collapse and die. And as the story goes, that's the origin of our modern 26-mile marathon. But there's much more to it than that, because after the Persians are defeated... Again, they travel south to try and attack Athens, but the Athenians are ready for them there as well. Already having been catastrophically defeated 25 miles north at Marathon, the Persians turn their ships and they return back to Asia. This is the end of the Battle of Marathon, and this concludes the end of the first invasion of Greece. Now, this is a moment that Greeks will hang their hats on for some time. They're victorious. They've not only defeated their enemy on the field of battle, but more importantly than that, they've defeated the greatest and most powerful military force in the world, or at least they think. And the Greeks will rally around this victory, at least the Athenians will for sure, for much of the next decade. We've beaten them at Marathon. Our worldview has reigned supreme. This great ever-expanding Persian Empire has been stalled, and who stalled them? Well, just the people we always thought would the Greeks themselves. But what the Greeks aren't aware of, and if they knew, perhaps they'd be behaving a little bit differently, is that for them, the war has just begun. Yes, Darius has been repulsed, but a new, young, hungry leader, anxious for revenge, will return in only a few years. His name is Xerxes, and with him will be the single largest military force the ancient world has ever seen. On the next episode, we'll discuss the 300 Spartans, the Battle of Thermopylae, the second invasion of Greece, and the forging of a Greek identity. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.